Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. I'd like to welcome Griffin Phil, a political science undergrad at Millbury College focused on international relations, specifically concerning the Middle East. We're going to talk about Biden's upcoming visit to Saudi Arabia and negotiations for a new Iran nuclear deal. Griffin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jacob. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting time in the region. Uh, you could see you know, Biden at the start of his administration and during the campaign, he really made a point of criticizing Saudi Arabia and it's clear that the uh, Saudi Arabian Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, MBS, as he's traditionally typically known as, uh, took it rather personally. Jake Sullivan was uh, had a conversation with him right after the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine began to try and get the oil situation under control, and apparently he was basically shattered out of the room. So this does certainly look like a opportunity on the U.S.'s side to try and. Uh, men fences and get over the past issues. It seems like the price of that inevitably will be uh, forgetting and moving on from the whole uh, murder slash assassination of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, which is a considerable moral price for the United States to pay, but ultimately gas prices will tank Biden in the midterm, or it seems possible that they will. And you know, US politicians care about getting reelected first and foremost. So you basically just covered my first question here. Walk us through that. Why exactly, you know, look, it's the gas, it's the oil, but, you know, what else does that play here with Biden going to meet MBS after basically getting yelled at, like getting, his administration getting yelled at by MBS during his, the first year of his presidency? What's going on here? Yeah, so the traditional assumption would be that by the time a U.S. president is ready to make a foreign visit, a deal's already been made. Um that has not been publicly sort of leaked yet. No one, no one in the administration, in this sort of an, an authorized leak or an unauthorized leak, no one's really made a point of saying that any any real progress has been made, which is concerning. Um, there certainly is an optics risk on the American side that if Biden goes there and there's no real progress made, um, the Saudis have essentially humiliated us on the international stage and will be quite frankly humiliated. But one would imagine that there's enough time between now and the actual uh, trip a few weeks from today uh, that hopefully there'll be some indication that uh, an agreement has essentially been reached. What it will largely be, um, most likely, there's essentially three different formats it could be, um, other than the fourth format, which is you know go to hell on the Saudi part and you know uh, pound dirt. The first one would be that the Saudis agree unilaterally to pump more oil. They don't have a huge slack capacity. Um, less than a third of the deficit that would you know, is generally considered to be enough to bring oil prices back down. Um, number two would be getting their allies in the region. So that's uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar to a lesser extent, although they'll probably follow Saudi's lead on this. Um, the UAE and Oman, and together they have a significant enough oil capacity they can they can make a real impact. And third will be that Saudi looks to find a way to expel Russia from OPEC plus or sideline them 
so that they can change the amount of oil production that occurs across the whole cartel, allowing for a, a much larger increase in oil production. That's the least likely because it really would damage Saudi interests, having a smaller uh, OPEC plus cartel system in, in the long term. So if they were going to do that, it would likely be a very high price to America. I'm not sure what we have that they want that badly. Just to clarify, OPEC is... OPEC is the uh, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. It used to be uh, really the vast majority of oil production. It's, it's less now as more minor developing world countries and even some uh, Western countries have been able to increase their uh, petrochemical production. But it still has the ability more or less to set international prices. Um, domestic demand a little less so in, in, in parts of the world, but challenge is basically that, especially in nat gas and natural gas, that um, the Europeans are just sucking so much of it out of the global market with the issues with the Russians now that, for example, the US is, is shipping huge amounts of natural gas to Europe, uh, even at the detriment of our own internal markets. So we certainly could, if we wanted to, shut down all uh, natural gas and oil exports, and a lot of our energy problems would go away tomorrow, but the Europeans would be, you know, understandably so ballistic. My, my guess would be that the European response to the Russian invasion has been to some extent predicated on uh, guarantees from the United States that we would share the pain with them in terms of energy problems. So you think that by the end of this meeting next month or when, or somewhere in the short term, Biden's going to get the Saudis to rally the Gulf states to get the oil to America and the European states? Yeah, so if I would say if the trip gets canceled at the last minute, the reason would be very clearly that the Saudis haven't budged. Um, I, I can't imagine Biden going without being very confident that a deal can be reached, unless MBS is just playing us and wants to drag Biden to Riyadh um, with Biden thinking a deal has been made and then MBS be able to give a middle finger in the palace and say, you know, go to hell, we're not dealing with you. Um, it'd be pretty extraordinary. So my suspicion would be if, if Biden goes to Riyadh, things have been more or less, enough progress has been made that, that, that it justifies going for sure, which is gonna be a significant amount. Um, oil, the Gulf states and the Arabs can do more about. Nat gas is gonna be a little harder. And that's where the Europeans have the biggest problems. Of course, Qatar can help somewhat. And the Europeans are definitely looking at various sources in Africa, uh, Angola, Mozambique, and Equatorial Guinea amongst them for uh, alternate sources, but uh, Mozambique has been having uh, Islamic insurgency problems around like uh, Porto Delegado. I think Total, the uh, French energy concern, has had to uh, give up its attempts to build a, a large refinery in Mozambique because the region was essentially occupied by Islamists. It's, it's going to be challenging for the Europeans. It's, it'll be a slow burn, I, I, most likely, I, I don't think they'll be able to just get over the hump with it entirely within a year, really, no matter what they do. But the, the Gulf can certainly lessen the pain. So oil and gas are the big, are, is the main reason Biden's going to Riyadh. What else does Biden want from MBS? What else could Biden, Blinken, and Austin be thinking about getting from MBS? Yeah, so the West is, you know, the United States rather has signaled supposedly in their mind, um, you know, Biden spoke at a press conference about this a few days ago, I think maybe it was a week ago, theoretically that he's not going because of energy prices. I mean, that's just a lie. It's a nice lie, but it doesn't mean it's not a lie. 
Um, he's definitely going because of energy prices. Um, there is the Israel angle and the Iran angle. The U.S. is frankly going to slowly move towards caring much less about Israel and much less about Iran in the in the medium term. It was a useful, you know, uh, a useful sort of aircraft carrier for the for the Middle East uh, in the Middle East in terms of influence, if not actually, you know, providing a, a, a soldier a, a base for U.S. troops and, and airplanes. But essentially, I think there's a slow movement in the U.S. political consensus that at some point Israel is an infinitely our problem. Um, and Iran really, as the U.S. in the next 20, 20, 20 years or so, moves towards being majority green energy, we really stop caring about Iran, especially in regards to Saudi. We still care a little bit in regards to Israel as we sort of slowly distance ourselves from them in, in, in the U.S. political consciousness, but that's still a few decades away. Um, there's been some talk about a some sort of a treaty structure between us, the Arabs, led by the Saudis, and um, Israel about some sort of like um, essentially Middle East NATO agreement to stop the Iranians. It's already happening to an extent below ground quietly, but the problem is no one really wants to, the Arabs don't really want to lift a finger if the Iranians and the Israelis, you know, go beat the crap out of each other. That's, that's the Arab, Arabs would consider that a win. And, you know, quite similarly, I think the Israelis would be just fine with the Iranians and the Saudis just going at it. Basically, both the Arabs and the Israelis would prefer that the other one isn't entirely wiped out and they're left to face Iran alone. But beyond that, they have such a wide gulf and so many other issues that anything beyond sort of an informal alliance of convenience, to me at least, is hard to imagine being a, a stable long-term situation in the region. So you think that something like the Trump administration's very enhanced focus on Israel, on the peace process, on the relationship between Israel and the Gulf states with the Abraham Accords, you think that's basically, it's basically the apex of the U.S. actually caring about Israel? You think it's all downhill from here? Yeah, honestly, I think that the way the U.S. sees it to some extent is like, you know, that was our, our sort of last big formal helpful move to Israel that we've, you know, helped them on the road towards normalization with their, their, their Arab neighbors. I mean, really, there's not much more practical sense we can do for Israel at this much, at, at this point. Like, we're not going to attack Iran for the Israelis. The Israelis will probably attack Iran on their own, and we'll be okay with that. We won't necessarily love it because it's going to create some real energy problems. Um, you know, if the Iranians were smart, this would be the moment to make the jump towards getting nukes because the U.S. is going to be really jumpy about the idea of a Middle Eastern war that's going to drive energy prices through the roof and is going to really want to want to try and keep the Israelis contained. But this is the problem that the U.S. and interests and Israel's interests are sort of slowly diverging in the region. The U.S. cares less and less from a real strategic perspective, and it's slowly just becoming a uh, sort of sentimental bond, which is nice, but, you know, uh, I always like the Charles de Gaulle quote, you know, France has no, has, has no, no friends, only interests. And I think, you know, in the long term, any country operates in that strategy that the U.S. will have a, an affection for Israel and certainly especially the evangelical lobby in the United States will. But I think they're playing a smaller and smaller role in our strategic calculus in the region over time. So let's switch to Iran. Right now, there's negotiations for a new Iran deal, for some kind of resurrection of the old deal, or something Biden wants to do. 
Right now, according to some intelligence sources, Iran is just months or even weeks away from, from getting enough you know, nuclear material for a bomb. But your point is that Iran is, isn't even going to be on the US's high priority list. So are, are Americans who, who fear Iran, are Americans who put Iran on the high priority for them on what they vote on or what they care about, are they are they are they basically you know going to be you forgotten. know yeah forgotten they basically it's a pet issue going to be completely swept aside like we're all freaking out for nothing yeah i would say i think you know the us would like to care about iran but even the united states can only handle so many issues at once and right now the top of our list in the long term you know 20 30 40 years in the future is the chinese and i have a lot of opinions on the chinese i could talk about them ostensibly another time but basically everyone you know left right and center agrees that medium to long term they're, they're the actual problem that we need to handle um russia's throwing a real a real uh, a real spanner in, in the works there where we're now having to move troops to eastern europe and you know thankfully the europeans are getting serious about defense which lightens up our position there somewhat but Iran's just not the top of our priorities list. I mean, I think the, the, the question one more foreign policy people are just asking is so what? So what? I mean, even Marco Rubio, um, I actually saw this today or maybe yesterday. He said it seems more or less inevitable that the Iranians will get nukes eventually. And it's just a matter of time. And he's against a nuclear deal only because the nuclear deal will end up giving them money as well as nukes, which I think basically we've moved towards uh, a mental model of Iran being North Korea with oil, where we just sort of ignore it and isolate it and pretend it doesn't really exist. Um, they have obviously a much larger economy and they can play a real role in the region. But I think, yeah, like I said, people are just asking, so what? It's, I mean, what are, what are we going to do? You can send in, you know, airstrikes and maybe you blow up the Iranian nuclear facilities. Or maybe they send 300,000 troops into Saudi Arabia and start a regional conflict. Who knows? And, you know, it's very likely that inevitably if either the United States or Israel strikes Iran, the Iranian proxies around Israel will throw everything they have at them. And the Israelis aren't excited about that. I've, I've always wondered about their real commitment to launch a, launch a strike against the Iranians if, if it comes to it. I mean, Traditionally, they haven't exactly shied away from confrontation as a country. They've been comfortable taking risks. So history would suggest that they, they probably will, but I don't know. I'm not convinced. Maybe, but it doesn't, there's not so much the United States can do about it either way. I think our, our focus really right now is um, staunching the bleeding in Europe uh, and in our own domestic markets. That's, that's our biggest concern right now. But you're saying, but you're comparing Iran, a nuclear Iran, to a nuclear North Korea. And North Korea doesn't have, like you saw, the proxies. You know, Iran is, Iran, there's been stories about Iran hacking government, you know, uh, city governments here in the United States. True, they but there's also, been story about the, there's also been a story about the North Koreans hacking things. I mean, the North Koreans have yes. hacked plenty of crypto exchanges and things like that. I think, I think we're really seeing a shifting in the U.S. conception of foreign policy because we used to be terrified of the Iranian proxies and like, you know, but now I think more and more, every time someone says Iran can do this, the response is, so what, you know, it, 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 Iran can take out, you know, to take over Yemen and Yemen fully. So what your Iran can destabilize Saudi Arabia in maybe 30 years down the line. So what, 
Iran can take over Bahrain with the, the Shia Muslim population. So what? Iran can take over, uh, to, Iran can, you know, break Lebanon more than it's already broken, which is hard to imagine. But uh, they could take it over and, you know, create a land bridge through Syria and northern Iraq into Iran. So what? I, I, Iran achieves everything it wants to achieve in the Middle East. It's not good for the United States, but it doesn't destroy American interests. Really, as long as the Suez Canal is open, in 20 years, we'll have enough green energy. And what capacity we don't have, we'll have, be able to fill with domestic production. We don't care. It's, it's, it's not make or break for the United States. We have no, beyond energy, we have no key economic or commercial interests there. They're not huge buyers of American goods. I mean, the Saudis buy American weapons, but it's hardly a, hardly a make or break economic issue for us. If, if we can disengage uh, energy-wise in the Middle East, we don't give a damn what happens there. But you, don't far think, away. but you don't think the Ayatollah or whoever, or, uh, you know, whoever in Iran is going to say, oh, I'm just going to go nuke Jerusalem for the hell of it. I mean, they're not, and, you don't think it, they're going to nuke Jerusalem? You don't think they're going to at least try to? I, I think the potential, the, I think the likelihood of the Iranians nuking Israel is somewhat minimal, at least, at least because the Israelis can absolutely level Iran in response. And I, I, I think you know, the question the United States is asking with all of this again is, so what? Like the, obviously we don't want Israel to be destroyed, obviously, but how many trillions of dollars are we willing to spend and how many wars are we willing to start in the region to stop a potential chain of events, which each, each thing in that chain of events is a relatively low probability of occurring, that even if that, that entire chain is completed, only still leads to the relatively low probability event of Israel being destroyed. And I think that, that that's, that's the problem that the United States faces is that when there are obvious front and center core economic issues for the United States and core geostrategic issues for the United States, like control over the Pacific Ocean and control of the trade routes there that make the life and death to the United States economy and the system. And we have limited resources. How many resources are we willing to expend on the pursuit of maybe security for a country halfway across the world that we only have a sentimental connection with. And I think that that's, that's, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for the Israelis, obviously, but and I think the Israeli lobby uh, is powerful enough that they've been able to slow that process and they'll continue to slow that process for the next, for the next several decades, likely. And I, I think, you know, Generally speaking, the United States is the population and the government is still quite pro-Israel, um, especially in the older politicians. But in the next 20 years, they're going to they're going to start to fade and Israel will be left in a difficult situation with the United States. All right. So we've talked about the hypothetical next 20 years. What do you think is going to happen in the next you know, six months? You know, the more fun questions, the, the immediate. Yeah. So you think regarding a, the more immediate questions regarding Iran in specific, the broader Middle East or- uh, Yeah, like, like you said, and the MBS and the Gulf states, they're going to send some gas, some oil over. You know, nothing's going to really change on that front. You said that Iran's probably going to get the nukes. What, what, what is Biden going to do the rest of his term? This is definitely, like, it's one is, again, it's, it's the, the attention span problem and the, uh, the limited resources problem. So that the U.S. is going to focus on China first, Russia second, and scraps for everyone else. Nobody was going to do anything about Iran, I, I, I have to guess. Um, the interesting thing for the Saudis is the way they ideally want to play this and play and have played in the past is that they'd like to wait 
keep oil high until the US oil companies invest a lot of money into new production. And as soon as they've invested a lot of money into new, new production and their, their oil wells are about to go online, they want to tank the price. Because American oil wells have a much higher operating cost than Middle Eastern oil wells because the oil is much more difficult to get out of the ground in the United States. So they can get the American oil giants to invest billions into producing, especially in fracking, uh, producing all this oil and natural gas and then implode the price. They can you know, seriously weaken the financial health of those oil companies uh, maintaining and ex expanding their sort of hege hegemony within the oil production uh, ecosystem. So they, they've definitely done that before where they wanna sort of game prices, not just for their own benefit, but to try and break competitors. Because of like, the uh, ESG and like environmental sustainable investing, banks have been very reluctant to provide the loans on the scale required to give these um, petrochemical companies the ability to make these huge investments. So Saudi's ability to, you know, like sort of screw over Exxon and all the other, all the other big guys is much more limited than it would be otherwise, which is probably actually annoying the Saudis. But on the other hand, it's, it's helpful in the long term because American production is considerably lower than it would be otherwise. They'll probably, you know, they'll move to increase oil production somewhat. The more interesting thing will be the means to which they do it, whether they're able to somehow corral, corral OPEC and OPEC plus into doing it one way or another, or if they do it uh, unilaterally or with a handful of their close partners. So you give us a lot to think about. Griffin, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any quick final thoughts? Yeah, I think Saudi is going to be one of the most interesting countries to watch the next 20 to 30 years. I would definitely suggest everyone read about um, MBS and his reform projects. He's a fascinating character. I've always said of him as sort of a, a wannabe Louis XIV. He wants to be a great man. He has some pretty serious personality flaws. But if you watch him, I think in the next in the next years, it'll be a fascinating thing. It's it's a bizarre country, but really, really so interesting to watch. I'd recommend if anyone's interested in for some uh, extra reading, um, Neom, uh, N-E-O-M in Saudi Arabia. It's a planned city that they're building somewhere around, I think, a hundred billion dollar price tag for the initial stages. It's going to be essentially the largest planned project in human history, and it's likely what will make or break. Uh, the future of Saudi Arabia. But uh, that's certainly, that's also one of the reasons why they're so intent on keeping a hold of oil prices because they just need a tremendous amount of money to make all of that work. It's fascinating to watch. It's a fascinating region to watch. Uh, it's something I'll definitely be hopefully interacting with in my career. But uh, thank you so much, Jacob, for hosting me. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. That concludes this episode of Gen Zero's Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero's Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero's Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. <laughs>